Welcome to the return of the Primal Endurance Podcast. This is your host, Brad Kearns, and we are going on a journey to a kinder, gentler, smarter, more fun, more effective way to train for ambitious endurance goals. Visit primalendurance.fit to join the community and enroll in our free video course. Hey, man, how's your sexual function? Oh, uncomfortable talking about it? Look, we talk about our injured knees, our belly fat, so it's time to get focused on function. I want to tell you about Gaines Wave. This is a cutting-edge protocol where a handheld device sends low-intensity shock waves into your penile blood vessels to stimulate a healing response and promote increased blood circulation and the growth of new blood vessels. A skilled practitioner puts the Gaines Wave magic wand onto your magic wand, and after a series of 6 to 12 very brief treatments, which are painless but extremely effective, you get real results. Gaines Wave reports an 80% success rate. Now, we know that popping pills is a popular penile protocol, but when you're working with clogged pipes, you just get a temporary Band-Aid effect when you take prescription drugs. Gaines Wave addresses the cause of age-related decline by stimulating growth factors and activating dormant stem cells. Translation, stronger, harder, more sustainable erections. I learned about Gainsway from my podcast guest, Dr. Judson Brandeis at the Brandeis MD Clinic in Northern California, and there's a robust network of Gainsway providers that you can find on their website near you. Complete a series of treatments, and the beneficial effects will last for a long time, especially if you eat and exercise well to promote overall vascular health. It's a tune-up for your equipment, and while it's great for ED, Gaines Wave is for any man that wants to combat the effects of aging and get a little boost for your A-game. So please visit GainesWave.com slash Brad. That's G-A-I-N-S-W-A-V-E dot com slash B-R-A-D to find a practitioner in your area, and you can take advantage of my special promotion, buy six treatments, and get one free. You have nothing to lose and lots to gain from gainswave.com slash Brad. Hello, Primal Endurance Podcast listener. I'm sorry that we have not had a regular aggressive publication of episodes. I direct you over to my BRAD podcast where we are on schedule with a couple great shows a week about a broader uh, subject matter of diet, exercise, health, fitness, peak performance relationships, happiness, longevity, and many things of interest to the devoted endurance athlete. But it's great to see that we still have some uh, really impressive download numbers, people going back into the archives and tapping into the many wonderful interviews I've done on this show with uh, the greatest athletes, coaches, endurance experts, authors. And uh, I'm glad you can go back there and explore the archives. And I will be committed to uh, publishing updated shows regularly, and keep the dream alive, primal endurance. Anyway, uh, today I wanted to have a little fun and riff on a topic that uh, popped into my head when I saw the news that the Ironman Corporation was looking for a new CEO. They're doing a pretty sophisticated search because someone sent me uh, this uh, confidential notice with all the parameters, like a, a job hunt, a head hunt, and it's also in... Uh, mainstream news channels. So 
Um, what's interesting to me is reflecting on my beginnings at the inception of the professional aspect of the sport back in the uh, mid-80s and how much the sport has grown today to the point where there's a corporation that's now a billion-dollar revenue company with 600 employees and 235 official Ironman-branded events around the world each year. Back in the 80s, there was one Ironman every year. It was in Kailua, Kona, Hawaii. It's been held there annually until 2023 for the first time ever. Oh, no, excuse me. With COVID, they had to cancel it, and they they put the Ironman World Championships in St. George, Utah, but they also decided to hold the men's Ironman World Championship race uh, in Nice, France this year, which is the location of another fantastic race, one of my favorite ones ever. It was called the World Long Distance Championships held annually in Nice, France in the 80s and 90s and, and into the 2000s. So uh, they are now uh, going away from the epicenter of Hawaii uh, with some uh, other uh, options and branching out. I think some people are uh, pretty upset about that. Uh, but the problem is so many people want to race in the world championships that they simply can't hold uh, that number of athletes in the small town of Kailua Kona. So what they did was they had the men's race in Nice and the women's race this year in Kailua Kona. Um, boy, one of my favorite places, the Big Island, love that town. And what I especially love now is going back there and not having to race the Ironman because my quote unquote vacations over to Hawaii in the old days to participate wasn't really much of a vacation. You sit around in your air conditioned room, conserve energy, maybe go out and do a workout and test things out. And then you go slam yourself for a full day out on the lava fields. And um, I, I do get some uh, PTSD flashbacks when I'm out there uh, shopping at the farmer's market and I get overheated and have to go sit down in the shade. And I think to myself, what the heck was I thinking? What was I doing here at 2 p.m. in the afternoon when I'm getting overheated at the farmer's market buying papayas and mangoes where I used to be racking my bike and heading out to run a marathon in that oppressive heat that you get on the Kona Coast? So uh, my time, 8.57 back in 1989, was a record in the uh, 24 and under division and still holds 33 years later. So I do not have to go back and participate. Uh, thankfully, I can just keep keep jawing about that from the sidelines. Uh, so speaking of this uh, CEO search, um, I want to take the opportunity in this show to tell you what I would do if they force me to become CEO of the Ironman Corporation. And um, uh, there's some uh, controversy and complaining about this commercialization of the sport and having a billion dollar company, uh, you know, focused on uh, revenue and uh, sponsors and perhaps marginalizing the athletes at times or the needs of the athletes. And one of the things you hear complaining about is the continued escalation uh, in the uh, entry fees for the race. And I'm going to push back on this a little bit because after I competed as a professional, I became a race director uh, for about 10 years. I put on what I called the world's toughest half Ironman triathlon in Auburn, California. And boy, it was uh, an unbelievable massive amount of work. It was clearly 
the most overwhelming and stressful career challenge I've ever had by far compared to sitting down and writing a book, which can also be stressful and difficult. But there was nothing like putting on a major event with up to 725 athletes and all the logistics and the multitasking and the plate spinning and my phone ringing off the hook and my email box blowing up uh, for at least the last week of the race was just nonstop gas pedal on the floor, working 18 to 20 hours a day. Uh, the night before the race, I'm staying up, marking the course and doing things that you have to do in the middle of the night. So there's no disruption and no one knocking over your cones. Uh, so I'd stay up until about 3.30 or 3.45 marking the course. And then my alarm would ring at 4.15 to get up and get down there to the swim start uh, in time for all the preparations before a 7 a.m. swim start. It was absolutely mind-blowing how difficult it is to be a race, race director. And I must admit now that when I finished racing, I figured that I would be an expert race director by virtue of participating in around 130 triathlons around the world and having this vast database of knowledge from being an athlete at the front of the pack. And oh my gosh, the first weekend of my first race, I realized that I knew F all about how to organize a team and uh, you know a, a staff of uh, 15 or 20 and a volunteer base of around 120 to 150 for my race in particular. And boy, I was just in over my head right away. And even after a decade of experience, it was no easier or only slightly marginally easier uh, than that first time. So the reason I'm uh, giving you this background is that I definitely advocate for the race directors to make a fair profit and perhaps even a, a handsome profit in the case of a corporation like Iron Man and in the case of the many uh, mom and pop race directors who might uh, organize one or two or eight or 12 races a year. It's a, a, an amazing uh, gesture to the community to present the competitive venue, especially when it's out on public roads and you're dealing with public agencies and going to meetings for months in advance to get the permission to close down the state park running trails that day or hire the California Highway Patrol, in my case, to close down five or six major intersections for many hours so the race could happen. There's so many logistics behind the scenes and largely the highly focused driven competitive athlete who shows up and demands everything to be perfect. And if something is not perfect, they will sound off on the forums and message boards of triathlon and your race will have a black mark against it and the rumors will spread. So it was a very, very demanding audience. And I think uh, not enough empathy for what it's like on the other side. So having been on both sides, I'm going to say give race directors a break, uh, put the screws to them when necessary, because if they sacrifice your safety in the name of profit, or it looks a little, uh, a little, a little like uh, the commercialization aspect was perhaps more important and more attention to detail where the sponsor banners went versus the attention to detail how well the course is marked. Yes, they deserve some heat when they're overlooking the needs of the athletes, especially the safety. And I am proud of the safety record that we had at my events because strongly influenced by my background, especially as an elite racer racing at the front of the pack. Because if you have a dangerous intersection that's poorly marked or poorly controlled, guess who is going to be the most vulnerable? That's right, the first guy to show up at that crazy-ass intersection where there's not enough cops or they're not doing their job aggressively enough. So I went to great lengths to make sure that the course was marked beautifully, having gone off course on a few occasions in my career and lost prize money accordingly because the marking was terrible. And that was always my priority. 
um, and again, uh, trying to make a, a, a fair profit for uh, doing this a, as a business venture. So if your entry fee has gone up in Ironman, I don't know what it is now. Is it hundreds of dollars, $800 or $600 or $1,000, whatever it is, it's probably a deserved entry fee for the experience that you're getting and the effort that it takes behind that. Um, so there, uh, that's my that's my take on entry fees. However, uh, I always had a policy in my events for a fixed income or full-time student uh, could appeal and send an email and say, I hereby request a lower entry fee uh, due to my circumstances. And we would always honor those people because we do not want to turn away anybody uh, for uh, budget reasons, especially when you're talking about a sport that's so massively expensive to participate in anyway, where you have to, you're kind of obligated if you want to be competitive to buy the $450 wetsuit and the $8,000 bike. And now I guess the $400 running shoes, right? And um, there you go with the entry fee on top of that. Okay. So um, as as CEO of the Ironman, I'm taking over for a day. Uh, I'm not going to uh, kowtow to uh, the need to dramatically reduce entry fees because the entities are making too much profit. Let's sit on that one. But I will object to the my main contention here with the commercialization of endurance sports is the romanticizing of extreme endurance challenges that are almost certainly unhealthy for most people. So if I were CEO, day one, my first act upon taking helm would be to cut the Ironman distance in half so that hereby, heretofore, the Ironman is 70.3 miles. It's still an incredibly long-ass extreme endurance achievement to swim 1.2 miles in open water, bicycle 56 miles, and run 13.1 miles. But for the vast majority of participants, I'm not talking about the pros who are training five, six, seven, eight hours a day and are highly competent and are racing the Ironman all the way through to the finish for 140 miles. I'm talking about the mass participation. So perhaps we could keep the professional championship events at the traditional Ironman distance. But for most of us, I think we should down downshift and downsize our ambitions because remember the Ironman distance uh, is has been glorified by marketing hype and it started as a whim and a folly where a bunch of drunken sailors were sitting around in Honolulu uh, debating which was the toughest endurance event in the Hawaiian Islands. And the three up for uh, consideration were the Waikiki Rough Water Swim of 2.4 miles, the bicycle ride around Oahu, which was 112 miles on that organized bicycle ride, or the Honolulu Marathon, of course, 26.2 miles. And then some wise guy, might have been John Collins, who's credited with... Uh, creating the event said, hey, why don't we try to do all three in a day? And then we'll certainly be uh, an Ironman. And that in 1978 was how the race started. And so these are random distances that were stacked together as a fun endeavor one day many years ago. And now it has become it's supposedly the ultimate uh, athletic achievement in multi-sport is to complete an Ironman. And so when you're walking around uh, joining this triathlon community at whatever level you started at, the talk will always escalate to, oh, uh, do you aspire to do an Ironman someday? Have you ever done an Ironman? 
well, no, I just do sprint triathlons. I've only done Olympic distance. Well, I've done a couple of halves, but never a full. That's the kind of talk and the mentality that's been programmed into our brains as endurance athletes to celebrate the longest race as the most uh, esteemed accomplishment. And I'm going to call BS on that for a moment because wouldn't it be an awesome athletic accomplishment to go out there even at a sprint distance triathlon and really excel and push your body to that anaerobic threshold red line and have a really fast, strong swim where you beat your time from the previous and then get on that bike and actually pound the pedals and hammer like the, the glorified athletes in the Tour de France do and then get off that bike and rather than shuffling and, and dragging your feet all day through an Ironman where you're barely going faster than a walk or in many cases, a lot of the population in the race is walking rather than running. So it's not a 26.2 marathon run. It should be called a long ass shuffle slash walk slash a little bit of jogging while your family and friends are waiting patiently for 13 or 14 or 15 hours for you to finish. What if Iron Man were 70.3? I think the world would be a better place. And I know this is a super controversial take. I already popped off a little bit on social media and got some choice comebacks like, hey, it is and always will be the ultimate triathlon. Yes, and that is because of marketing hype and profit-seeking enterprises luring you to the starting line to pull the trigger and sign up and make the commitment to prepare for such an extreme event. But when you overlay someone who's living an ordinary, normal life with family and work responsibilities and a social life, it can easily overwhelm your life to the extent that the entire endeavor compromises your health in pursuit of peak athletic accomplishment. And I'm not in favor of athletic events that compromise your health. Uh, if you're getting a little chapped at Brad riffing on all this, remember, I'm coming from uh, the perspective that I spent nine years of my life competing on the pro circuit and training my butt off to make those incremental gains in fitness and performance so I could rise up the finishing uh, list from seventh to fifth to perhaps a victory. And all of that compromised my health significantly for the entire time, the entire duration of my professional career. My health was on edge or over the edge while I was continuing to refine my fitness. And today I'm so happy to report and I have so much uh, content on both this channel and the BRAD podcast about how I've transitioned my athletic goals into the sprint power explosiveness category because they're alluring and appealing and new for me. So I wanna be good at sprinting and high jumping and speed golf, which is a relatively shorter duration, but still an endurance event where you're running for 45 minutes. Uh, but I feel like these endeavors are more aligned with health and less destructive to my health than the extreme endurance training required to excel at the highest level on the professional circuit, even at short distance events, of course. And for the recreational triathlete, the extremely long distances that you're training for are going to come at the expense of your health just because of the hour, the time count, as well as just the, the overall training and stress load piled on to all the other forms of stress in your life. So there's my pitch and there's my declaration that Iron Man is cut in half. And if I were a, a CEO of USA uh, track and field road running department, I would do the same for the fricking marathon. Uh, yes, we can still watch 
the uh, the elite performers uh, try to break two hours and enjoy uh, being spectators on the sidelines after we complete our 13.1 mile ordinary human marathon. Okay, cutting distances in half. Next item on the agenda, first day as CEO, are reparations for everyone who is currently sporting the Iron Man logo as a tattoo on their body. So it's been for uh, many years, decades, uh, a rite of passage and a common practice to finish your perhaps your first Ironman race and then go get a tattoo. The favored spot is on the side of the hip where the tattoo is visible clearly when you're wearing a Speedo, uh, as you often do when you're training and doing swim workouts, uh, or perhaps visible through the split when you're wearing split running shorts for your running workout. But it's kind of like the key location for the Iron Man tattoo, or they call it an M dot tattoo because the logo is an M uh, with an I, uh, with a dotted I in the middle. So the, the middle stem looks like an I. Um, so here's the thing uh, someone paying good money to the tattoo artist to wear a corporate logo, I think, should be compensated uh, for that wonderful sponsorship and endorsement of the brand. And so rather than, I mean, we got to pay the tattoo artist, right? But the Iron Man Corporation, you send me a picture of your M dot tattoo that you're sporting around every day around other athletes, and I'm going to pay you a sponsorship fee. How about that? Okay. Um, I mean, look, I'm certainly willing to uh, put a corporate logo tattoo on my body um, after a great athletic achievement, if that's the occasion, uh, but they're going to have to pay me a million bucks. So if you want to swish on the side of my arm or three stripes or whatever the logo is, uh, pay up. And that's what's fair. All right. Next, I'm going to ban aero bars. This coming from the first multi-sport athlete ever to use aero bars in a multi-sport event. That was the Desert Princess Run Bike Run back in February of 87. I busted them out secretly. I actually got them uh, shipped to me from the inventor of the DH bar, uh, Boone Lennon up at Scott USA. I got it like on a Wednesday. I put them on my bike and I rode around uh, for five miles testing them out. Uh, then I rode again, maybe 15 miles, and then it was time for the race. And so I showed up in the morning and put this bike in the bike racks, if you can imagine, with these crazy-looking aerodynamic handlebars. And people were laughing and smirking and saying, what the heck's that? And then uh, just as the weight race went that day, it was a run-bike run. So first race was a 10K run, 38-mile bike through the desert, uh, finishing with a 10K run. It was the World Championship uh, Desert Princess Series. And I had a, uh, a slower run at, at the start. A lot of guys went out too fast, as they're known to do in that race. And I believe I was like uh, uh, 24th after the first run. And I ended the bike ride uh, tied for third and fourth. And so I passed a bunch of top pros in the world in this aerodynamic position. And everybody I passed looked at me with complete shock and stared at this position, and you could see it registering in their brain that, oh my gosh, this is a vastly superior position than trying to hunch over the regular handlebars. And it's been a sensation in uh, triathlon since that day. And of course, the aerodynamic handlebars provide a significant advantage, probably the most dramatic. You can go look up on YouTube, Greg LeMond, um, the Tour de France 1989, when he came from behind in the final time trial and won the tour Remember, a three-week tour lasting for dozens of hours. He won by, I believe, eight seconds over Laurent Fignon. 
due to his sensational final time trial where he busted out the aerodynamic handlebars for the first time ever in the Tour de France. The traditionalists were just uh, against it. And when they saw Le Mans going at 34 miles an hour for that short time trial around Paris, um, they very quickly made their way into the ranks of professional cycling. Uh, but anyway, that's a little bit of history for the aero bars. And one thing that occurs to me today is that, again, when we're talking about recreational athletes who are just going out there trying to have a good time and finish, um, the aero bars are significantly, slightly to significantly more dangerous when you're out there on the road training with them. So I would ban them in the amateur category. Sorry, guys. I know it's more fun to pick up a mile per hour or two, but when you're on the open roads and training and traffic and get ready for the next one I'm going to slap you with, um, they have, I think, some a significant compromising your ability to handle the bike when you're stretched out into that position rather than the traditional uh, drop handlebars where you're holding on and you're sitting up a little more upright where you can navigate uh, obstacles, navigate traffic a little better. So the guy who started the aero bar scene in multi-sport is now going to ban him uh, as CEO. And guess what else I'm going to ban? I'm going to ban road cycling. So uh, here, from here on in, uh, all triathlons must take place on uh, dirt roads or paved bicycle paths. And I do not want athletes out there training on these super expensive road bikes out on the open road. Here's the thing. You are risking your life every single time you set out for a routine training ride, especially in the modern days where we have the uh, ubiquitous mobile device in hand, including with a lot of drivers, and we also have giant SUVs. So fortunately, I put in my miles out on the road. Uh, now it's been 25 years since I've been out there, so there weren't any people doing text messaging while they were driving. And they didn't even have the giant SUVs back then. And so I feel like it was a lot safer, less distracted driving. But still, um, you know, uh, think about it. You probably have a family, loved ones. You love your sport. You love the diversion of breaking free from the office or home life and getting out there on the open road and pedaling. But when you set out, as soon as you leave your driveway and go onto the public street, you are doing almost certainly the single most dangerous thing that you do in life by a factor of 10x or 100x. Quick, get out a notepad. Write down the 10 most dangerous things that you do in a routine daily life. Uh, okay, if you're a professional uh, 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 tree faller, like the guys that I see climbing up 80 feet onto palm trees, cutting down the fronds, and then jumping over to the next tree while they're cabled in, uh, that seems a little dangerous. Uh, it's also dangerous to be a coal miner. There are also other careers that are super dangerous inherently, and uh, those people are taking those risks. But for most of us, cycling on the open road is 10x more dangerous than number two. I don't even know what number two is. Uh, I mean, it, it could be driving, which is exponentially safer than riding a bicycle because if a bicycle and a car collide, guess who's going to win? Even uh, whichever motorist, whichever pilot was in the wrong, uh, it's not going to be much of a contest. So um, I'm a huge proponent of off-road cycling, uh, bike path cycling if necessary. And if you bristle at this and you don't think it's that dangerous because you're such a good rider or because you have... <laughs> so one friend told me that... Uh, uh, he's got a uh, an app on his phone 
that has a sensor to warn him of an approaching car from behind. Oh my gosh, are you freaking kidding me? That is not going to help when some 17-year-old driver is uh, trying to send a text and uh, will you know, come up right behind and it's over before your app uh, starts beeping. I want to tell you about wildhealth.com. They're an online provider of comprehensive precision medicine and health consultation services. They offer DNA analysis, custom lab panels, extensive medical intake form with family history and lifestyle preferences, and regular online visits with a board-certified precision medicine physician and a health coach whom you can message anytime through their convenient app. Wild Health evaluates your data to determine what you need for nutrition, exercise, sleep, and supplements, and you can experiment, consult, and retest to get everything dialed in. You'll get a cutting-edge epigenetic test of DNA methylation to calculate your all-important biological age and have fun lowering your age over time instead of following the mainstream path to accelerated aging. It's time to strive for awesome instead of just normal. Did you realize that only 6.8% of Americans are deemed metabolically healthy and only 2% are declared optimal? That's disgraceful, but you can turn things around quickly. Please visit wildhealth.com and you will see that this is the absolute gold standard of personalized medicine and it's available to you right now. Telemedicine available anywhere in the USA. Wild Health is generously extending BRAD podcast listeners 20% off the cost of membership. Just visit wildhealth.com slash Brad or use the code Brad20 at checkout to get 20% off and start taking control of your health today at wildhealth.com slash Brad. I do uh, appreciate the review mirrors and I've always used one for decades and so you can please Whatever you do, even if you're not going to quit cold turkey after listening to my show, uh, go online and order a rear view mirror that mounts on your helmet. And that way you can see what's going on behind you without having to turn your head away from what's in front of you. Because I think uh, an, a common way to crash is you're turning your head because you're uh, worried about an approaching car and you hit a pothole and you go down. So wear a rearview mirror if you are riding a bicycle. Uh, prioritize the most safest roads you possibly can, even if that means a little bit of inconvenience like getting in your car and driving 12 minutes because I think a lot of people have that ability to get out into uh, a safe area. And I'm not going to say that uh, rural is necessarily safer than urban. So it's not as cut and dried as that. In many cases and in many urban environments, they have such an attention to bicycle safety and such a high population of bikers that you get a measure of safety when you're biking in common areas. Uh, PCH, where I used to live in Southern California, that stands for Pacific Coast Highway, um, extremely busy, dangerous highway that runs along the coast. Uh, for the length of Los Angeles and Malibu and into uh, Ventura County. Uh, I did a lot of riding on there, and there's a ton of cyclists on that road all the time. Uh, I still contend that it's super dangerous, but you do get that tiny measure of safety that you might not have if you're choosing uh, some rural county highway that has uh, an insufficient shoulder, and you think just because the lack of car population is going to make you uh, bulletproof from any potential uh, danger, that's not true either. Um, and they have this uh, shared space concept, 
in Europe where they have um, bicycles intermingled with uh, automobiles. And it's so common that uh, they, they feel like it's safer than trying to uh, separate and do a lot of signage and striping and ways to uh, attempt to keep the bikes and cars uh, apart uh, because people get lulled into complacency in that case. And that's when a car uh, you know, turns into the bike lane that one time and, and takes out the biker because they weren't looking. But in Amsterdam, where cycling is ubiquitous, and there's other examples of this shared space concept working well, um, the bikers don't have a bright green lane to pedal in, but they actually fare pretty well because everyone's aware of them. And that's what I mean by uh, cycling in uh, highly populated cycling routes. Uh, I'm also referencing uh, San Vicente Boulevard in West Los Angeles, which is a thoroughfare that's busy with fast moving cars, but tons and tons of uh, cyclists and joggers, thereby every motorist on there is a little more aware than perhaps another boulevard that's not highly populated. But it's a losing proposition any way you slice it. So if you insist on riding your bicycle on the road, realize that it's 10x to 100x more dangerous than the next most dangerous thing you do in life. Ask yourself about the risk-reward payoff, whether it's absolutely necessary, and go to extreme measures to keep yourself safe out there. Ah, and if I was CEO of the Ironman with that kind of power, and I said, guess what? The 2024, 25, and 26 seasons are all going to be held off-road, so better get yourself a mountain bike and start training. And the other cool thing about mountain bikes is that when you use them uh, on paved roads, on 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 streets and, and, and highways and whatever, um, you have a more safe position. You have fatter tires so you can navigate obstacles better. I have personally had the experience of taking my mountain bike and nose diving into the bushes off the road because a truck and a trailer was fast approaching on a curve and the trailer was swinging wider than the driver. Uh, I've also been hit by a boat trailer in that same dynamic where the driver is driving safely and keeping their car in the lane safely, but they don't realize the momentum caused by a trailer turning wide. And so the boat trailer just swung wide. I saw it coming and it knocked me off of my bike onto the sidewalk. Um, luckily, I wasn't hurt badly, but that was kind of the last straw for me as an athlete training in Los Angeles, California, urban area. I said, enough of this already. That was my second uh, bike accident in six months at the hands of a car. And that's when I moved to uh, Northern California and was out riding in the remote, uh, quiet logging roads and trails uh, in Northern California, much, much safer place to ride my bike. Okay. How about that? Is that enough on the uh, the banning of road cycling theme? What else am I going to do as CEO? Oh, you know what? How about uh, drug testing the age groupers? Okay, I'm just kidding on that uh, aspect, kind of, but and I don't follow it very closely, but I know there's been uh, some whining and controversy about this topic where um, some of the people picking up the prizes and getting on the podium in the uh, advanced age groups uh, are being suspected of or accused, or I think they do uh, do some testing and some people have tested positive for banned substances. Um, of course, in elite professional Olympic sports, we have to fight this battle really hard or we're obligated to do the best we can to try to keep these sports clean. Um, World Anti-Doping Agency has random, unannounced, out of competition, annual 24-7, 365 possibility if you're signed up as a performer in the elite or in the Olympic sports, they can knock on your door anytime and request a sample. And that's a really uh, noble move to try to keep sports clean, especially 
deter athletes from doping up in the off season and then going to the competition and testing clean because they know how long drugs leave their system. But when we're talking about amateur sport, um, I'm not sure it's a high priority. And if someone wants to dope their asses off and beat you out of that spot on the podium, I think the the planet has worse problems right now. You know what I mean? I know it's a bad deal and it probably hurts your feelings to work really hard and try to win that title and end up getting second to some 63-year-old who's got veins bulging all over his body and red skin from uh, taking extra testosterone. Uh, but I'm not uh, terribly concerned about that. At the elite level, of course, we have to keep refining our approach. Um, the athletes are always going to be looking for advantages. And this brings to mind... I think this was actually episode one on the Primal Endurance podcast, episode one or two, where Mark Sisson and I talking in depth about the overall issue of doping in elite sports, especially endurance sports. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Mark served as the anti-doping, anti-doping commissioner for the sport of triathlon for the International Triathlon Union for many years. He actually created the first charter for the, the first uh, drug testing policy and implementation for the sport of triathlon in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. So he's been uh, highly involved in this, is uh, highly aware of all the uh, the nuances and the moral uh, objections and implications and things that are uh, probably behind the scenes of the average uh, sports viewer who likes to form this mentality of, oh, there's a cheater, they're disgraceful, let's bust them and kick them out. You're probably uh, thinking of Lance Armstrong right now. Uh, but if you know even a little bit about the world of cycling and the doping culture that has existed for decades, you realize that during Lance's era as the greatest cyclist uh, in history, really, and one of the greatest endurance athletes of all time, he was competing in a sport that is confirmed to be filthy dirty, such that all that giant pack that was racing the Tour de France that you see on TV when Lance was winning again and again in the yellow jersey, all those guys were doped off their ass. I shouldn't say all, but let's say that um, the vast majority, uh, 95%, 97%, does some clean mid-90s cyclists want to get on uh, the podcast and 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 proclaim that uh, they took, uh, what do they call it, Pani Agua is the, uh, uh, the quip. Uh, from the Tour de France riders from decades ago, where uh, I think it was Jacques Antequil, a five-time winner, once said, you cannot do the tour on Pani Agua alone, bread and water in French. And so the needles have been going into these guys for decades. It's part of the culture um, for, for many reasons, including the behavior of the organizers that didn't want to really crack down that hard, and also knowing how extremely difficult these events are. Uh, Sisson has advanced a really compelling argument that perhaps we should legalize doping uh, in the elite sports, Olympics, and especially endurance sports. Isn't that crazy? Hear this out. Uh, what would what would happen if we legalized it? It was it would end the uh, clandestine doping practices that can oftentimes be unhealthy uh, for the athlete and also also provide an unfair advantage to those who choose to dope while others choose to remain clean. But if we're all brought into the open and put out on the table, then the elite athletes could get excellent medical care to oversee a properly conducted doping regimen where they were optimizing levels of the important hormones. Uh, EPO is the oxygen, uh, the red blood cell boosting hormone. It's made naturally in the body, erythropoietin. 
and they take the drug called EPO to boost their red blood cell production in the exact same manner that you get when you're training at high altitude. And as an offshoot there, uh, if you can afford a $12,000 altitude tent to enclose your bed uh, in an altitude chamber, you are getting a doping advantage completely legally because you're not putting a needle into your body, but it still brings up the moral implications of, hey, who can afford a $12,000 tent to zip around their, their bed every night? And is that fair? And you could argue certainly that it's not fair. So um, if the uh, extreme endurance sports were legalized, such as uh, professional Ironman triathlon racing and marathon running and Tour de France racing, uh, what would you have? Oh, you'd have a bunch of athletes keeling over and dying because drugs are so dangerous. In fact, the extreme nature of the training and the competition in these sports that I mentioned is so physically unhealthy to the body. It tanks your hormones so significantly that it's highly validated to argue that a doped up athlete has less health destructive consequences than someone who's trying to train and race for the Ironman or the Tour de France uh, clean without the uh, boosting of hormone replacement. Uh, so if you're out there training 30 hours a week, like a pro Ironman athlete or a Tour de France athlete, you're on the red line at all times, like I described about my own career, and you're constantly tanking your hormones, you're suppressing your immune system, uh, suppressing the important sex hormones like testosterone, growth hormone, and you are uh, e often or easily depleting uh, your red blood cell content also. So back in my day as a professional triathlete from uh, 86 to 94, I was age 20 to 30 approximately, I got my blood tested all the time. Thank you, Brother Wally, for working in a laboratory where I had easy access. And I would often go in there when I was feeling tired, beat up, burnt out from a lot of travel or a lot of extreme training. And reliably, my testosterone would tank down to what is considered hypogonadal. So I would be a candidate for hormone replacement if I were a guy off the street. But of course, I'm competing in elite sport, so I couldn't take anything to uh, alter my body chemistry. So I would sit there looking at a blood result that said my testosterone was 280 or 290 or 330. And I would also notice a decline in my uh, hematocrit, which is the important uh, reader of how much your uh, red blood cell content in your cells, and that is oxygen carrying. And so people who get iron deficiency anemia have a low hematocrit, and they feel like hell, and they're not delivering enough oxygen to the working muscles and tissues throughout the body. And so I'd see my hematocrit go from a somewhat healthy 42 or 43. Uh, the dopers who use EPO will get it up and over 50. Uh, so I was doing the best I could as a natural athlete and seeing these results like 42 or 43. But when I got tired and burnt out, I would see that hematocrit drop to 38 or 37 or 36. And that is uh, significantly low for someone who's trying to pump a bunch of oxygen through the working muscles in training every day. And what would happen? I would have to go home and sleep and eat a lot of hamburger to get some extra iron in the diet and be patient and allow those testosterone levels and that hematocrit level to rise up naturally. And it would take one, two, or three weeks, sometimes six weeks if I was really fried. And then I would get my hormones and my blood work back up to normal level where I could go out there and train appropriately again and do the same exact freaking thing to myself uh, with a, you know another training block of uh, efforts that were extremely stressful to the body as revealed by adverse blood values. And so uh, if I could only imagine 
having my hormones and my hematocrit pegged for those nine years that I competed on the circuit, oh my gosh, it would be a laughable, uh, ridiculous difference. They they have a confirmed uh, research showing that EPO provides a 6% advantage in endurance competition. Um, so if I had a 6% advantage, I can go into the other room, get out my file folder and show you my race results from nine years on the triathlon circuit. If I were 6% better in every race that I competed in, I would have won easily virtually every race I competed in and be waiting at the finish after taking a shower and having some scrambled eggs for second place finisher. Because 6% over a two hour race, right? Uh, 120 minutes, or we usually race like 110 minutes. That would be five minutes or so. <laughs> you know, five minutes is the difference between first and 15th or 23rd in uh, races on the professional triathlon circuit. So, um, you know, legalizing doping and allowing the athletes to have the optimal body chemistry for events that are so extreme in nature that they're not realigned with human health. It's worth taking a breath and thinking about it sometimes. Um, yeah, maybe that's not too popular of a take. And everyone should be honest and clean and all that. But when they're not, and when you're competing in a sport that you believe is not a level playing field, whether it is or not, that's when everything becomes screwed up and the morality and the high-mindedness uh, of the individual starts to get muddled in uh, what you perceive to be unfair circumstances. I think the best account of this came in Tyler, Tyler Hamilton's brilliant book, uh, written with Daniel Coyle called The Secret Race, where he pretty much spilled the beans of what it's like to be an athlete on uh, the professional cycling scene in Europe. And here's a young kid, uh, national cycling champion at University of Colorado Boulder, nice, good, all-American guy, goes over there, races his heart out. And I think the title of the chapter uh, was, was called A Thousand Days, because A Thousand Days is about how long you will last on the European cycling scene without doping your ass off to stay up with the pack. And he finally got called into the secret room and they said, boy, we like your heart. We see how hard you pedal even when you're falling behind and you need to get your uh, vitamin program optimized. And that was the euphemism they used uh, to get over into uh, the doping culture and peg that hematocrit and going from uh, getting uh, dropped off the back of the pack to 6% better uh, means that you're going to win Olympic gold medals like Tyler Hamilton did. Uh, sadly, he tested positive and the gold medal was stripped. But who's holding that gold medal now? Sometimes it's no one. Like when Lance was uh, stripped of his seven Tour de France titles from 1999 to 2005, uh, guess who the title was awarded to? Nobody, because the, the doping culture was so exposed with the uh, raids of the doctor's office, Operation Puerto, it was called. Uh, all this stuff came out in the wash such that they decided to vacate the Tour de France title for those seven years. Kind of ridiculous because like, look, Lance was the fastest guy to the finish line. If everyone was doping, why not give him, <laughs> allow him to keep his yellow jerseys? I think he said F you to whoever asked for the yellow jerseys back. I like when people do that. Like Reggie Bush, the Heisman Trophy winner at USC, um, he had to return his Heisman Trophy because his family took money from a sports agent. Isn't that ridiculous now in this day and age when you see all the college athletes getting those big dollars on those NIL deals, which I think is an awesome thing. Uh, yeah, I should probably finish up on this discussion of doping because I know there's a lot of controversy also about the uh, transgender athletes competing as females. And clearly, 
there's a huge advantage to having a different hormonal profile uh, for however many years uh, prior to uh, transitioning and entering in the female division. And it's also true that the hormonal advantage uh, experienced in prior years lingers for quite some time. This is the same idea as a bodybuilder or an athlete in another sport like football, uh, doping their asses off in the off season and then go and testing cleanly, but still having this amazing block of training where they were hormonally boosted and getting the fitness benefits that accrue and the muscle mass in the case of the bodybuilder. So even though they test clean, obviously that drug passed, or in the case that I'm referencing, uh, that passed as a male with male hormonal profile um, is a huge unfair advantage. Now, in Olympics, professional competition, uh, this is a huge dilemma. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, moral implications and uh, how to uh, legislate and identify. There's been cases of uh, elite athletes like Olympic gold medal, 800-meter uh, runner Castor Semenya from South Africa, uh, who, who was you know, competing in the female division but has um, uh, unusual blood findings and ambiguity, they call it. And I'm not an expert, so I don't want to get into that. Uh, but again, just like I talked about with um, drug testing amateur athletes, if some transgender athlete wants to compete as a female and they're going to beat everybody because they're stronger and have uh, uh, all those advantages, I think we have bigger problems in the world. I know it's not fair, but I also know that these people have been marginalized in so many ways and had such a brutally tough journey to get to that point where they have the courage to honor the, uh, the the emotions and and the thoughts and the inclinations and 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 you know uh, transition to what they feel is a more appropriate existence. Oh my gosh! I think the the um, the outrage and the the, the singling out um, is probably a little bit overboard when we're talking about um, competing for fun. Anyway, I mean, look, uh, the essence of sport is to pursue a, a personal growth opportunity, personal challenge. And I think that goes for everybody. And this is regardless of whether you make the podium or maybe you got bumped off and you were fourth place uh, to some transgender athletes ahead of you and you're really bitter about that. But maybe you should just be proud of the amazing performance that you did uh, to get to fourth place. So that's my little sassy comeback on another potentially controversial topic. Uh, but I do give a lot of credit to those people who are on that, uh, on that rough and courageous road uh, to be the best that they can be, and maybe we can uh, tone things down and and cut uh, people a break. And um, I really love the post by the uh, uh, the triathlon legend Jan Frodeno uh, uh, reacting to the news uh, that one of his uh, peers on the triathlon circuit uh, tested positive for EPO and admitted to it, uh, um, and with a, a bitch ass confession that uh, for some reason uh, rubbed me the wrong way. It's like if you're caught and you're busted and you're guilty, uh, step up there, confess, say you're sorry. Uh, but I think um, what I saw was a really uh, backdoor confession, and it shows that person has a lot of personal growth uh, ahead of them and and more challenges, right? I mean, own up to it. Come on. Uh, same with Marion Jones in her famous press conference in the early 2000s where um, the, the takeaway pull quote that I remember was, what I thought was muscle cream for my aching muscles turned out to be performance-enhancing drugs. Oh, you thought that was just some lotion for your hamstring like the, uh, the icy hot tiger bomb. Yeah, right. Come on, just spill all the beans because then 
we can uh, at least your uh, your disgraceful act can work toward uh, moving sports forward and uh, pursuing a uh, level playing field. Uh, so what Jan Frodeno said was, you know, the reason he got into the sport of triathlon uh, was to uh, challenge himself at a young age. He, he put a picture up of him and his father cycling up a hill when he was just a kid. And he says it's given him so many rewards, but the rewards have been uh, personally gratifying. Uh, therefore, the decision to dope is so strange because really, like, what do you want to do? Win the race knowing that you have gained an unfair advantage over competitors? So as I give Lance Armstrong and all the other guys, uh, Tyler Hamilton, a huge break for making virtually the only possible decision they could make to compete at the highest level of professional cycling, I have some harsh words and feelings for those who are cheating in sports that are by and large believed to be clean. And boy, to get an unfair advantage and cheat out your peers and people that you train with and socialize with, that shows uh, some real problems with character there. And there's uh, absolutely no excuse. Um, luckily, my time on the professional circuit, 86 to 94, predated the advent of EPO, which was really the game-changing drug in endurance sports. So it pretty much didn't exist except for um, some cyclists in, in the Netherlands who were testing it out. And a lot of them died in their sleep. I believe it was like 24 high-level Dutch cyclists died um, in the late 80s, early 90s from uh, screwing around with EPO when they didn't really know how to use it. Uh, but back to my career, um, there was uh, minimal suspicion of performance-enhancing drug use. But in fact, there were some uh, isolated occasions of athletes testing positive that I competed against frequently and took a lot of money out of my pocket because they were some prominent elite athletes. And I have uh, only, uh, uh, you know, really um, um, uh, criticism and uh, disgraceful feelings for those people that cheated uh, what they pretty much knew were a bunch of clean athletes. So there we go. Um, it's all circumstantial and it's helpful to uh, understand and appreciate the big picture. Thank you for having me as your CEO for one day. And I think now I'm going to resign and uh, let someone else step up. And hopefully they'll honor some of my suggestions. Hey, you want to comment? Oh, my gosh. I'd love to hear from you. Whatever you got, even if you're um, in disagreement and uh, strong disagreement, it'll be fun fodder. Maybe I'll read it on the Q&A show. So please email podcast at bradventures.com. I appreciate all feedback, commentary, and opinion sharing as we work on this healthy fit lifestyle together thanks a lot for listening or watching hey man how's your sexual function oh uncomfortable talking about it look we talk about our injured knees our belly fat so it's time to get focused on function i want to tell you about gains wave this is a cutting edge protocol where a handheld device sends low intensity shock waves into your penile blood vessels to stimulate a healing response and promote increased blood circulation and the growth of new blood vessels a skilled practitioner puts the gains wave magic wand onto your magic wand and after a series of six to twelve very brief treatments which are painless but extremely effective you get real results gains wave reports an 80 percent success rate now we know that popping pills is a popular penile protocol, but when you're working with clogged pipes, you just get a temporary band-aid effect when you take prescription drugs. Gains Wave addresses the cause of age-related decline by stimulating growth factors and activating dormant stem cells. Translation, stronger, harder, more sustainable erections.
I learned about Gainsway from my podcast guest, Dr. Judson Brandeis at the Brandeis MD Clinic in Northern California. And there's a robust network of Gainswave providers that you can find on their website near you. Complete a series of treatments, and the beneficial effects will last for a long time, especially if you eat and exercise well to promote overall vascular health. It's a tune-up for your equipment, and while it's great for ED, Gainswave is for any man that wants to combat the effects of aging and get a little boost for your A-game. So please visit Gainswave.com slash Brad. That's G-A-I-N-S-W-A-V-E dot com slash B-R-A-D to find a practitioner in your area, and you can take advantage of my special promotion, buy six treatments, and get one free. You have nothing to lose and lots to gain from gainswave.com slash Brad. I hope you enjoyed this episode and encourage you to check out the Primal Endurance Mastery Course at primalendurance.fit. This is the ultimate online educational experience where you can learn from the world's great coaches and trainers, diet, peak performance, and recovery experts, as well as lengthy one-on-one interviews from several of the greatest endurance athletes of all time, not published anywhere else. It's a major educational experience with hundreds of videos, but you can get free access to a mini course with an ebook summary of the Primal Endurance Approach and nine step-by-step videos on how to become a Primal Endurance Athlete. This mini-course will help you develop a strong basic understanding of this all-encompassing approach to endurance training that includes Primal-aligned eating to escape carbohydrate dependency and enhance fat metabolism, building an aerobic base with comfortably paced workouts, strategically introducing high-intensity strength and sprint workouts, emphasizing rest recovery and annual periodization, and finally cultivating an intuitive approach to training instead of the usual robotic approach of fixed weekly workout schedules. Just head over to primalendurance.fit and learn all about the course and how we can help you go faster and preserve your health while you're at it. 